Thank you. Please be seated. And let us pray. Father, it is good to know that all things of significance are in your hands, and none more so than our eternal relationship with thee. Thank you, Lord, for blessing this time, opening our hearts and ears. For Christ's sake, amen. The third stanza of the hymn that uh, we just sang uh, summarizes what we're going to be talking about in this session. Crown him the Lord of life, who triumphed over the grave, who rose victorious to the strife for those he came to save. His glories now we sing, who died and rose on high, who died eternal life to bring, and lives that death may die. The issue of the atonement can be stated in at least a, a couple of different ways. For whom did Christ die, and what did Jesus accomplish on the cross? In other words, what is the extent of the atonement? The response of the Calvinists and the uh, writers of the Canons of Dort has um, sparked some controversy and very heated debate um, on all of the doctrines of grace. Even within the Reform camp, though, there is some ambivalence concerning this point, a limited atonement. Uh, whenever you hear of a four-point Calvinist, this is usually the point that they uh, take exception to. Some of the great reformers, uh, Martin Luther, and some say even John Calvin himself, seem to have a different view of the extent of the atonement. The phrase limited atonement certainly gets the attention of people. It's enough to cause most evangelicals to be a little uncomfortable with this doctrine to place any restrictions at all upon the glorious work of Christ on the cross seems sacrilegious. Now, if you were to Google limited atonement, you would find a whole host of critics of, of Calvinism, some claiming that this is, as Steve mentioned, the most profane characterization of God in the history of the church. And it seems like these middle three points uh, create the most hostility. Some have called these three points making God out to be a monster, uh, God making God to be a hypocritical liar. And uh, a few weeks ago, a couple months ago, I guess, now on uh, Detroit Christian radio station, Bob Duco interviewed Norm Geisler. He called irresistible grace making God out to be the perp perpetrator of divine rape. So why do we even bring these subjects up? Why even talk about things that create such controversy? You know how it is if you go to a family gathering there are certain subjects that you just don't talk about for the sake of everybody to get along. Uh, you don't bring up politics or you don't bring up an incident in the past that was uh, uncomfortable. You keep it light, you keep it cheery, and everyone uh, gets along. Well, in my opinion, the American evangelical church has been avoiding the elephant in the room for far too long. Uh, robust theological conversation is needed today more than ever, but not the kind you see on YouTube, the kind that drives us back to the scriptures and takes us to our knees in prayer. When I was in seminary, the theological lines of demarcation were clearly drawn between the mainline churches and the evangelicals. It was the liberals versus conservatives. We read Machen's book, Christianity and Liberalism. We understood what we were up against. But today, things are very different. Uh, one local pastor in our area said, well, today, everybody is an evangelical. In other words, 
we seem to use the same language, though we really may mean very different things when we use that language. If I were to redraw the line of concern today, I wouldn't label it liberal versus conservative, but pragmatic versus confessional. What works rather than what is true. Last month, we uh, were in the Boston area visiting our daughter and, and son-in-law, and we visited a quaint New England town of Newburyport. And we went into one of the many churches, beautiful churches in that area, one of the congregational churches where George Whitfield is buried, and he's buried right underneath the pulpit. Can you imagine preaching right being above George Whitfield? And I was reminded as I contemplated uh, Whitfield's ministry about the difference between the first Great Awakening in the 1700s and the second Great Awakening in the 1800s. The first Great Awakening featured men like Whitfield and Wesley and Edwards. It came forth out of established churches, and it drew people to those local congregations. The second Great Awakening was more revivalistic uh, in nature. It started on the American frontier and seemed to draw people away from established churches and in some cases almost demonized confessional standards. Now, Charles Finney was a key leader of that movement, the Second Great Awakening. And what was important for Finney was, wasn't doctrine so much, but results. He had a very dynamic personality. He knew how to get a crowd. He knew how to work a crowd. He believed that salvation was generated by man. It was up to us to create an environment where converts could be made, and his new measures seemed to be just what the American frontier needed in order to Christianize America. Today, the American Evangelical Church is far more influenced by Charles Finney than by George Whitfield, or even Wesley for that matter. Have you ever wondered why there aren't counter-seminars to this one. Instead of a seminar on the five points of Calvinism or TULIP, why not a seminar on the five points of the Remonstrance? You don't see that because there doesn't have to be. The church growth seminars that are out among us today are, bring up the subject without even mentioning the Senate of Dort. Today, there are conferences and, and products that are marketed to churches. They say uh, will guarantee converts that will create an environment that will attract young people and create uh, uh, new believers. And Charles Finney would be very proud of that. What's lost in that is any serious effort to deal with the atonement. And I need to say that our Arminian brothers, theologians, are just as concerned about those trends as we are. What actually took place on the cross is a worthy issue to focus on, whether you're a four or a five-point Calvinist, or you're, whether you're the ordinary, Bible-believing, gospel-loving, John 3.16 evangelical. When our presentation of the gospel is more about ourselves than about what Jesus actually accomplished on the cross, then we really aren't offering very much. The Bible today is being used more for therapy than for theology. Whatever evokes a response out of people seems to be good. Throwing Bible verses out in rapid-fire succession doesn't make a message Christian, especially if that message is nothing more than slogans and 
helping people become all that they were meant to be. Let me give one more illustration. Several years ago, I was pleased to hear that my nephew was a new believer and that he was attending church. And he was attending one of those large, high-powered, energetic churches that were uh, very enthusiastic. And, and I would talk to him about his faith, but we really couldn't talk about anything of substance. He had been attending his church for several years at that point, and his training was extensive. I mean, he would go to classes two, three times a week and on, on Christian living, but he had never heard of the doctrines of grace. He never heard of terms like atonement and justification and regeneration. They were completely foreign to him. He had heard of sanctification, but not in the theological sense of the word. He said that the church, his church really didn't get into doctrine that much. He knew that as a follower of Christ, he was to be on fire for the Lord and empowered to defeat the forces of darkness. It was pure revivalism. It was centered not on what Christ accomplished on the cross, but on what you can do for God as a fired-up, sold-out believer. Now, I did like his enthusiasm, but I certainly could see where it was headed. It depended upon his commitment, not upon what Jesus accomplished on the cross. And sadly, uh, my nephew doesn't attend church uh, anymore. He says he reads an online uh, devotional that gives him spirit-filled empowerment for the day, but the common means of grace are absent from his life. Now, what does all of that have to do with limited atonement? This is my main premise. Until we return to a God-centered view of the atonement, we're doomed. Marketing will seem to be just as important, if not more important, than theology. Our people will be guided by slogans like, Jesus did his part on the cross, now you've got to do yours. Jesus voted for your salvation. The devil has voted for your condemnation. Now you need to cast the deciding vote or believe in the God who believes in you. If that's what our people are getting, then we might as well turn our pulpits over to the marketers because we're treating people like consumers rather than sinners who need God's grace. Today it's said that any meaningful of discussion about the atonement will just go right over people's heads and they can't understand them. But we beg to differ. And again, I believe our Arminian brothers are just as distraught over these trends in America as we are. I think we underestimate what people want and what people need and what people can understand. So again, our text that uh, Pete read helps us to, to look at the issue at hand. Paul begins by saying, I want you to pray for all kinds of people, uh, prayers and intercessions for kings and those in positions of authority, uh, so we can live a quiet and peaceful life. This is good and pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now that text states the issue that those who have problems with limited atonement uh, have. God wants everyone to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. How does that fit with the concept that Jesus died for a select group of people? The question really comes down to this. Who really limits the effect of the atonement? Which view of the atonement is closest to the heart of God who wants all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth? Back in uh, 2004, InterVarsity Press came out with these two books, 
why I'm not a Calvinist and why I am not an Arminian. Uh, good books. Uh, neither one of these books resort to the normal raker, raker who uh, and, uh, how vile um, discussion that you sometimes see on YouTube um, or, and the blogs. And they present uh, each position uh, carefully. The authors of Why I Am Not a Calvinist wrote this. What is at stake here is nothing less than the question of how we are saved from our sin and granted eternal life, a question toward which no believer can rationally be indifferent. If we don't care about this question, we don't understand. Now, I benefited from these books be, because they presented the other position fairly. They didn't set up a straw man argument and then ripped it down. Um, I'm still a Calvinist, but I understand the Arminian position a little bit better. They're riveted to the scriptures, as we hope to be, and they have a passionate concern for the lost. I think if I were to give a one-sentence summary, though, of the critics of limited atonement, it would be this. How can you not limit the value of the atonement when you restrict its efficacy to believers only? Now, if you have the notes, I've stated out the, the two views of the atonement, the universal redemption or general atonement. Christ's redeeming work made it possible for everyone to be saved but did not actually secure the salvation of anyone. Although Christ died for all people and for every person, only those who believe him are saved. And the death, his death enabled God to pardon sinners on the condition that they believed, though it did not actually put away anyone's sins. Christ's redemption becomes effective only if a person chooses to accept it. The other side, the canons of Dort, Calvinism, particular redemp redemption says Christ's redeeming work was intended to save the elect and actually secured salvation for them. It, in addition to putting away the sins of his people, Christ's redemption secured everything necessary for their salvation, including faith, which unites them to him. The gift of faith is infallibly applied by the Spirit to, who, to all for whom Christ died, therefore guaranteeing their salvation. So our respectful response to the legitimate concerns raised by our Armenian brothers is simply this. Can it, sustain, can it be sustained biblically that Jesus' death made, only made forgiveness and redemption possible? Or does the Bible teach that Jesus' death on the cross actually purchased redemption and forgiveness? Now, in Reformed theology, we like to focus upon what was accomplished on the cross. Not what was potentially done, but was what was actually accomplished. A ransom was paid. The work of redemption was completed. When Jesus said, it is finished, we believe that a mighty and glorious transaction took place. The debt of our sin was paid for, and our redemption was purchased and secured for all eternity. That's the great hope of the gospel. That's what all who believe in the Bible Rejoice and hope in. The doctrine of limited atonement certainly is not named well. It's misnamed for the sake of an acronym. There's nothing limited about what the atonement accomplished for whom Christ died. The atonement purchased our redemption and in the providence of God applied that salvation in our lives in the time of his choosing. Now, many times people will ask, when did you become a Christian? 
meaning when did you make a decision for Christ? If you know about when that happened in your life, it's a sweet moment. You remember it. You'll remember it to the day that you die. It's very sweet. But I think a more precise and accurate question would be this. When did you become aware that Jesus died on the cross for you? That he paid your debt? That he purchased you body and soul, making you his child forever? When did you realize that you were not your own, but you were bought at a price? You see, our salvation didn't occur when we decided to believe, but when God himself purchased us for himself. We love him because he first loved us, and that love was present before the creation of the world, and it was certainly present when Christ was on the cross. John Piper puts it this way, You did not make the cross of Christ effective in your life by your faith. The cross of Christ became effective in your life by purchasing your faith. You owe your faith to the cross. Your unbelief was covered by the blood of Christ. See, the atonement takes the attention off of ourselves and puts it directly upon the person and work of Christ. And that's where you want to be, whether you're an Arminian or a Calvinist. You want to be riveted and centered upon Christ. Particular redemption and definite atonement deals with this aspect of salvation. When does the atonement become ratified? The Arminian would say, when you believe the gospel. In other words, the atonement gives you a check, a check to every person, a check with your name on it, sufficient to pay the debt that you owe to God. And you simply have to cash it. And so our appeal to the sinner is go to the bank, cash that check, believe the gospel, and you can be out of debt forever. This is yours. You only have to endorse what Jesus did. This view of the atonement puts the ball in the court of the sinner, and the next move is up to us. In the Calvinist camp, we go back to the cross and we ask what was accomplished there. We understand that faith is necessary for redemption uh, and for regeneration. But when does the atonement become ratified? What was the intent of the substitutionary atonement of Christ? John Owen lists three possibilities. Christ died for the sins of for all the sins of all men. Christ died for all the sins of a select group. Or three, Christ died for some of the sins for all men. Now that first position is pure universalism. Jesus died for all the sins of everybody, therefore everyone will eventually be saved. Now he denies being a universalist, but Rob Bell infers that the death of Christ guarantees salvation for all. He questions how a loving God could send anyone to hell. In fact, that's what Rob Bell does more than anything else. He asks questions. In his book, Love Wins, there are 86 questions in the very first chapter alone. And those are questions that deal with the atonement and the judgment of God. Questions are good. We should all ask questions, but questions can sometimes be used as a rhetorical device. 
If you ask enough questions, you can control where the direction is going. Bell's questions, particularly in that first chapter, leads you to ask, how can a loving and reasonable God give us all every chance possible to avoid hell, either in this life or the next? Now keep in mind that asking questions is not the problem. Sometimes it's the spirit in which the question is asked. You remember in Luke's gospel that Mary and Zechariah both asked essentially the same question to Gabriel, who was the messenger from the Lord. Mary, when told that she was going to bear a son, she said, how could this be? Out of curiosity and wonder. Zechariah asked essentially the same question. He said, how do I know this is true? Really, though, asking Gabriel to justify himself. And there's a big difference. God does not have to prove himself to us on human terms. Someone told me one time, God doesn't do what is fair, he does what is right. God doesn't have to justify the fact that not everyone is going to be saved. The atonement of Christ was sufficient to do everything that it set out to do. Now, the Senate of Dort stated that the atonement has infinite value and universal, universal sufficiency. Yet its nature required a specific limited scope. It was for the elect. Those who don't like the term limited atonement or definite atonement or particular atonement probably wouldn't like the word generic put in front of the atonement either. Our perspective is this. The atonement was made for a definite number of particular people. And this is our logic. Christ's death actually saves people, but not all people are saved. Only some are saved. Therefore, Christ died to save some people. Who are those some people? Well, Isaiah speaks to that. He says, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come by and eat. Now, it's been often said that there are many passages in the Bible, and there are Calvinistic passages in the Bible. The Arminian proof test, texts that usually are the all-in-the-world passages. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, John 3.16. Hebrews 2.9, that he, Jesus, might taste death for all or for everyone. 1 John 2.2, 2. He is the propitiation for our sins, not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. And there's a lot of, a whole list of passages like that taken in isolation seem to support the premise that Jesus died equally for everybody in the same way. But all words need to be taken in context. As we began this session uh, this afternoon, Pete could have said, is everybody here? Meaning, not everybody in Flint, but everybody who was signed up for this conference. Or Pete could say, all of St. Louis rejoices in this day uh, because of the baseball game last night. Well, he does not mean every single individual in St. Louis, but certainly uh, a great many people uh, in that city. When the Bible uses the word all or everyone, there's always a context. More times than not, it means everyone without distinction, not everyone without exception. Our premise is that Jesus died with a particular group of people in mind. 
John 6:37 All that the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. John 10:11 I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The Pharisees who disagreed with him, Jesus responded to them, "You are not of my fold." John 17:9 I am not praying for the world but for those you have given me, for they are yours. Now how do we reconcile the Arminian proof text passages and the Calvinistic proof text passages. Like Titus 2.11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. And then in Ephesians 5, Jesus gave himself for the bride or the church. Well, I think we do need to acknowledge that there are scriptures that teach that Christ died for all men. And there are scriptures that teach that Christ died for the elect. And they are not contradictory. They complement one another. John Owen, in his book, The Death of Death and the Death of Christ, says there are two aspects of the atonement. There is general and particular. And he points to 1 Timothy 4.10. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially for those who believe. Jonathan Edwards said, in one sense, Jesus died for all. Yet there must be something particular about the atonement. Richard Baxter says, Jesus died for all, but not for all equally and with the same intent. God loves all men as creatures, but he has a special love for the elect. He loves the world, but Jesus died to save his people from their sin. Now, I found the parable in Matthew 13 helpful, the parable of the pearl, pearl with great value. It says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all he had and bought it. The man bought the whole field, but he bought it to get the pearls of great value. The death of Christ was the payment needed to purchase his people, people of great value. He loves the world, but he gave himself and died for his own. Now, in the First Timothy passage, Paul tells us to pray for all kinds of people, kings and rulers, the rich and the poor. Jesus wants all men, regardless, regardless of their class or category, to come to a knowledge of the truth. All men without distinction not all men without exception. Calvinists don't like the term limited atonement, not because it isn't accurate, because it seems to give the wrong impression. It seems like we're saying that what Christ accomplished on the cross isn't sufficient to do what it was set out to do, uh, set out to do and just the opposite is true. We certainly would prefer the term definite Atonement, meaning that his covenant with you is based upon what Christ definitively accomplished on the cross. Now, we'd like to use illustrations to try to explain difficult concepts. Some people like to view the work of Christ uh, on the cross as God giving you a, a train ticket, a train ticket that will take you to heaven. The price of that ticket was the blood of Christ, and there's no other way to get to heaven but to be on that train and to have that ticket. The ticket is only good if you use it. Otherwise, you have no one to blame but yourself. Now, all um, 
illustrations have limits. We don't disagree with that illustration, but we just don't think it goes far enough. Christ didn't just purchase a general admission ticket for his people. He purchased a ticket with your name on it. And he didn't just give you the ticket. He picked you up and he placed you in your seat. And the conductor didn't cry out all aboard. He, he made sure your name was called and your seat was filled. The response would be, well, that's fine, but you still had to be willing. You still had to believe the gospel to be a Christian. And we certainly agree with that. But the faith that brought you to that point was a part of the admission price. And that price was paid for by Christ himself. Now, there is no Bible-believing, born-again evangelical who wants to take any credit at all for his salvation. What we argue for limited atonement is that the very faith that we have was purchased ahead of time on the cross, not potentially, but actually. Christ paid the debt of my sin so that I'm able to believe. And that action was not contingent on my faith. It bought my faith. Now, what bothers those who don't like this doctrine is that what Christ did on the cross was different for the elect than for the non-elect. A chosen people, a, a, a people, a particular people, seems elitist. It seems like it discriminates against others unfairly. It's unloving, even un-American. One could imagine a protest against such a, a doctrine, very similar to the Occupy Wall Street movement that we see today. Those folks say that capitalism is unfair because it doesn't treat everybody fairly. We need to redistribute the wealth for the 99% uh, who are left out. The remonstrance would say that limited atonement is not fair because it doesn't, seems not to give everyone equal treatment. We need to redistribute grace for the 99%, even the 1%, or even the one sheep that goes astray. Of course, the difference is that for the Occupy Wall Street people, capitalism is not a perfect economic system. There are some people who are treated unfairly, poorly. But the atonement of Christ is perfect. And it perfectly saves those for whom Christ died. The love of God for the world, which is boundless, is displayed through his covenant people. And it's displayed perfectly. As a child of God, I am to love all people. I am to love my neighbor as myself, but I do not love my neighbor as the same way I love those that I'm in covenant with, namely my wife. There's an exclusiveness of my love for my wife that I do not share with others. Now, I'm imperfect and I demonstrate my love imperfectly, but the covenantal love of God is perfect and it shows itself perfectly. When Jesus said, I'm not praying for those in the world, but for those the Father has given me, he had you in mind. Yes, God loves the world, but he's in covenant with those that he died for. Now, there are many verses in the Bible that seem to take another direction, and they're good verses. God does not take pleasure in the death of the wicked, not wanting anyone to perish, but for everyone to come to repentance. 
The heart of God is not cold. There is no pleasure when the wicked are judged. But the wicked will be judged. If salvation is dependent upon our choice to accept it or not, then we had better sell it with everything that we have. But if salvation is based upon the atonement of Christ, then we better do all we can to proclaim that good news. And therein lies the difference. The atonement is not limited in what it accomplished. It, is com- it completely secured the salvation for those whom Christ has chosen. So the real issue is how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation as this? Let's pray together. Father, we who are speaking here today are pastors. We will not exclude anyone from our doors who need to hear the gospel. Those who love Jesus and want to see the gospel spread to all people, we will not put any roadblock in front of anyone to hear this good news. But this is good news. It is the best possible news that we could ever hear. Our way has been purchased so that we can believe and accept the offer of the gospel freely given to all people. We thank you for this. We rejoice in this. And now we are to proclaim it to every person, every tribe, and every nation until he returns again. And we give you our thanks now for your help in this. Through Christ our Lord. Amen.